days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. If you have any prayer requests, put them in our plate. Pull out the cards in your bulletin. Also, there's um, stuff going on this week, especially tonight. We're having the um, prayer meeting at the Greer's and then soup and supper afterwards. Also, we're sharing the harvest with the, our food items that we can put on the shelf and also the change for the babies. And there's a Good Friday service at 7 a.m. It's a little breakfast over at the West YMCA on Newell, and that's at 7 o'clock on Friday. And then also to donate, if you'd like to, for somebody in honor of or in memory of for Easter, we have a sign-up sheet that costs just $10 as a donation. And this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it on this wonderful Palm Sunday. Well, glory, Lord, and honor. Steve, would you want to read to us what that background on that is? Stand together and let's sing together this beautiful hymn. a good week to just reflect on your life and study the times that you got it right and also confess the times that you didn't. We don't take anything away from this week, uh, else uh, the, the whole journey that Christ takes this week is because he knew we wouldn't always get it right. But if we confess those sins, they will be forgiven. Please join me in this morning's prayer confession. King of the universe, 
Lord of all creation, we confess our fickleness along with the people of the first Palm Sunday. When it is popular, we find ourselves following along with the crowd and praising your name. But when things get challenging and we are tested, we follow the same crowd that has a mob mentality of removing you from our sight. We follow the hordes in unbelief so that we can go with our own desires and passions guilt-free. As we lay down the palm branches for you as our conquering king, we easily turn on a dime so that we can live for ourselves and get caught up in the things of this world. God, give us the courage to follow through with our commitment to take up our cross daily and follow you. Forgive our fears and doubts that choke our faith in you. All this we bring before the fountain of blood that flows from the cross of Calvary and washes away our sins. Amen. Our assurance of forgiveness this morning comes from 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I had also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Guidelines for living this morning is also from 1 Corinthians 15. But don't fool yourselves. Don't let yourselves be poisoned by this anti-resurrection loose talk. Bad company ruins good manners. Think straight. Awaken to the holiness of life. No more playing fast and loose with resurrection facts. Ignorance of God is a luxury that you can't afford times like these. Aren't you embarrassed that you have let this kind of thing go on as long as you have? Thank you, Scott. Let's continue to worship God and let us stand as we worship to sing majesty. Jesus. 
in heaven we thank you that you're the father of all creation the God of greatness in your son Jesus Christ who died for us is also the one who rides on the force at the end of the end of life we give you praise and thanksgiving for the wonderful hope that we have in Jesus Christ we thank you Lord for the blessings you give us for these gifts that you have that we have that we can give back to you Lord so much that you've given to us bless us now Jesus and bless these gifts that are given. In your name we pray. Amen.
them to live a prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this opportunity to come before you right now. We have a congregation that's filled with burdens and sorrows. And we pray especially, Lord, for those who are struggling in our midst. I pray, Father God, especially for Joyce and the challenge that's going to be coming this week to their family and the loss of her granddaughter, but also other situations. I just pray that you will go before them and bring out your will and your guidance. I pray also, too, Father God, we pray for Lucille and we pray for others um, <clears throat> that are struggling with their health. I think of Don and his hip. I think of those who we know that are battling addictions. I think of Ryan and Jordan and uh, Dave, and I think of Eric and Ricky uh, and uh, <clears throat> Mitch, Lord, these who are under the bondage, Lord. I just pray that you will help deliver them. We pray for our country, too, especially with all that's going on on the international level. Uh, we pray for those um, who are suffering, especially in the war with Russia. I just pray, Father, that uh, Putin would stop his silliness, Lord, and if not, that you take him out. And that, Lord, that you can bring peace to that land so that those folks can go back and rebuild their lives. I give you praise, too, for my niece who just had a baby, and I pray for her and her husband, Pedro, as they prepare themselves to go uh, as missionaries in, in those areas. And I just pray that you'll give them wisdom to know the place where they can be used the most, that they can glorify you, and that their daughter can do well in that area also. I pray for their safety, Lord, in those areas that are very difficult to serve. Pray also, too, Father God, <coughs> for our church as we begin to make the final decision about where we're going to go as a denomination and then the process that we will be going through with our, our previous denomination and also going into the new denomination. Pray that it will go smooth. I pray also for the school that has some challenges right now and all the difficulties that they're going through with having to bring things up to code with the fire marshals and with the especially the sprinkler system, that's such a costly thing, Father. I just pray that you'll intervene there and that you'll bring it about so these children can continue to get educated in the joy of the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this time, and I now pray for those who lost loved ones this past year and for the sorrows that they share, especially, Lord, with the hope of the resurrection. We are so happy that we'll know we'll see our loved ones again, but in the meantime, it's tough. And I just pray that you'll be with them and comfort them also. And now, Christ, bless us as we um, continue to worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul, even when my heart is breaking, He, my comfort, helps my soul.
told the story about building uh, vineyards and the tenants were excited to get their land but then when it came time to to, to pay he sent um, his stewards to go pick up the money and they beat them they killed them they even tortured them and stoned them then finally the owner of those vineyards decided I'm going to send my son And he sent his son, and they did the same thing. They beat him, they tortured him, and they killed him. Those were the words that Jesus told in his story of the parable of the tenants. And he was preparing himself and his disciples that they be prepared to hear and to see what was going to go happen in his life. And yet they denied it. They were not able to understand it. And today we have Palm Sunday, which is the great Sunday in which Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. There are lots of people there, a lot of people with high expectations, especially of Jesus. And the palm breeches came out. And what is so interesting about this for two things. Number one is what a wonderful thing that we have historically. When people say to us, oh, it's just a myth. Oh, you don't really believe that, do you? We can say, yes, we do believe it. And the reason why we can say that we believe it, because historically, it's more verified than a lot of the facts that we take in history. There's two independent uh, episodes that are told, one by Mark and the other by John. And the episode by, by Mark tells the same ingredients as John does, but then also Matthew and Luke, Luke who did investigation and put, compiled information together to present to his friend Theophilus, Matthew, who was there and was present and took part in it, was able to verify what Mark had done. And so what a powerful thing we have as Christians. When people look at us and say, well, I don't believe that, you say, well, then you're denying the truth of history. That George Washington then didn't go across the Delaware River. But in fact, that we have these facts and they're verifiable. We don't need them because we believe and trust that Jesus Christ and his word are inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they are truthful. But for the world out there, they don't understand it. So that's a great thing to have in your uh, ammunition when you talk to people who don't want to believe the gospel, that, that you have verifiable information. But the second thing that we don't understand, and I didn't realize until I did this study, <clears throat> is how much of the Bible, and how much of the, especially the gospel, is taken up with the last week of Jesus' life. In fact, out of all four Gospels, there are 89 chapters. And out of those 89 chapters, 30 of them are devoted to the last week of Jesus' life, which is a third of the Gospel. And what we find here is that we find that a fifth of it is, or two-fifths of it is the Gospel of Matthew. And Luke is one-third. And Mark is three-fifths, it's over a half. And John 
holds on to half of the book. So this past week, this coming week, if you want to, if you want to follow Jesus' road to the Via Della Rosa or going to the suffering that he's going to through, today we're going to be looking at chapter 12. But read chapter 12 and 13 today. And then each night or day, take a chapter until you hit 19, which will be Saturday, and you'll be ready for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what a powerful passage that we have here today with Jesus coming to us and sets his purpose. Jesus set his purpose for us when he said, On the next day the large crowd had come to the feast. And they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, and they took the branches of the palm branches and went out to meet him. And they began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now in those days they were under Roman occupation. And what Jesus is doing is he's coming into the east gate of Jerusalem. The east gate was bottled up and blocked up later on after Jesus had passed through it. But in the meantime, he's coming through the east gate. And the Messiah was to come through the east gate and, and come and, <clears throat> and do his work. And it's absolute time at the height of the, the holiday of Passover that Jesus comes through. Now, it's amazing that Jerusalem at that time was only about 50,000 people. But at the holidays, of, especially of Passover, we'd come up to over 250,000. We lived in the college town of Pella, Iowa, and they had a tulip time. And in the tulip time, they had only <clears throat> about 6,000 people lived in actually Pella, Iowa. But <clears throat> when tulip time came, it was about 125,000, and it was just an intense amount of people. So I can't imagine what it was like for Jerusalem with all these people descending upon it. But the thing that the Bible shows us that Jesus was dead set on getting to Jerusalem and getting his business done. And we recall <clears throat> prior to Palm Sunday, Jesus and his disciples had stopped in Bethany. You remember Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived together over in Bethany. And there with their disciples, they stayed overnight at, at Bethany with Lazarus and his two sisters. And then they started making their way on Friday, on their way, or on Thursday, on their way to Jerusalem. And eventually they get to Jerusalem, but they go and they take a detour to Bethpage. And once they get to Bethpage, then they move on to Jerusalem. And what they do is Jesus already had spoken to someone they believe and asked them to borrow their colt so that he could ride into Jerusalem. Jesus is very purposeful about what he's doing here. He wants everybody to see that now he's coming out and showing that he's the Messiah. Up until this point, if you remember, in all the Gospels, Jesus tells his disciples, don't tell anybody. Keep this among yourselves. Why? Because the Bible says to us, he was not yet ready to come out. It was not the Father's time for Jesus to have crucifixion. Jesus' time to come out was just during this Passover feast when it was time for the Passover lamb, who was Jesus Christ, to be slain for the sins of the world. And one of the things we find is, is that there were people there who did not care for Jesus. Now, you may find this in your own work, in your own business, maybe even in your own family. There are people that are around us that are narcissists. Have you ever met a narcissist? Don't wave your hand. <laughs> but they're terrible people to live with and deal with. Because if what you want to realize is that when they are not feeling good about themselves and they're feeling they're being lower than you, that's when they put on their battle gear and they're coming after you. And this is what happened with Jesus. The Pharisees were in good positions in Jerusalem. 
They were working for the government. They had well-paid jobs. They even had their own little system going on. And that the Romans were satisfied as long as they didn't riot or as long as they didn't cause any problem in the government. And they let them stay there and rule themselves. But the problem was the Jews were concerned that Jesus was going to upset the apple cart. And so what they did is they came after Jesus. They were envious of Jesus. They were the narcissists who wanted to be above Jesus. And one of the ways the narcissist works, either A, they work harder to be above you, or the other side, which most people take, is they try to undermine you, break your legs, get you down below them so they can seem more superior than you are. And this is what happens with Jesus. This happens to us in our own lives. And notice what Jesus does. Jesus continues to do the Father's will. And in doing the Father's will, his popularity grows and grows and grows. And in fact, he is the one who's not only going to come to Jerusalem this first time, but now he's also going to come later on in Revelation 19 as the ruler and the judge of Jerusalem. But right now he's coming purposely as the Prince of Peace. And he comes to demonstrate that he's there to bring peace Peace with God, peace with our fellow man. And notice Jesus was saying, up until this point, my time has not yet come. But right now, Jesus begins with the messianic work. And in the time of Nisan, which is Passover, uh, Nisan was like the first fruits of the time that the Jews would have, where they would celebrate their bringing their fruits in to, to Jerusalem. It was also the time in which they... Um, celebrated Passover, which was Jesus, which was God, overcoming in, in Egypt. If we remember Egypt and how they were coming out of Egypt and how they were, had the ten plagues. And the last plague was that God would bring a punishment upon Egypt, that their firstborn would die in their families, and that the Jews needed to be obedient to God and sacrifice the lamb and spread the blood over their doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over. And that's what he did. And here, now, Jesus is entering Passover because he has the lamb coming in. And during the time of Nisan, see, the 10th day of Nisan, 11th day of Nisan, families would come in to Jerusalem and they would choose their lamb and the lamb would stay with them. And then at sacrifice time, they would go over and have their lamb sacrificed. In fact, at Passover, which is usually on Thursday night, Friday morning, 258,000 Lambs were slain for the forgiveness of the sins of the Israelites. And here, Jesus is entering in. He's presenting himself as the lamb. And then as he goes through Jerusalem on Friday, he's going to become the sacrificial lamb. And what we find here is a shadow. A shadow of praise going on. The people are praising God. Not because they know this about Jesus. The disciples didn't even get it. And Jesus told them several times that this was going to happen. Yes, they're following Zechariah 9, 9. The king is coming riding on a dunk. But they thought Jesus was coming as the conqueror who was going to conquer Rome. After they heard Jesus' power to bring back the dead in Lazarus, they thought for sure this guy is going to do it for us and he's going to conquer Rome. But instead... Jesus comes bringing himself as a lamb to be slaughtered, to forgive our sins. And you see, sometimes it's so easy to get caught up in expecting things from God. This is what the Israelites did. And what they did is they were fickle. 
in their worship. Here they were on Sunday singing praise to him, hail Jesus. And by Friday, they were nailing Christ to the cross with the rest of the Jews. You see, the danger gets to be, and I know I could easily do this, is that we can have empty worship that has no meaning, that has no purpose, and doesn't honor God. Jesus said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far, far from me. Jesus is teaching us about our own lives here. How easy it is to get up. I remember when I was in church as a kid, I had learned the Lord's Prayer. And I remember when that point came in church, I'd stand up because I was a little excited. I knew it. And I'd recite it. And as I would be reciting, I said, I wonder what we're having for dinner. I wonder what mom's got cooking. I wonder if my friends want to play this afternoon. How easy it is to honor him with your lips, but not with your heart. I remember when I played college football. And I became known as the Fellowship of Christian Athletes Bible Study Leader. And the guys would look to me, and then the day of a game, they'd say, everybody, we're meeting up in, a, up in the uh, wrestling room for prayer. Now, in those days, we had 125 guys out for football. And before the game, there were 125 guys in the, lo- in the, wait- in the uh, uh, wrestling room on their knees, and they asked me to pray. And then after the game, to give a prayer of thanks, there were only 10. See, this is what Jesus is talking about. And this is what happens to us sometimes. I know sometimes I'll do my devotions and I got to watch myself that I'm not doing them just because I got to get them done. I'm doing them because I want to get with the Lord alone. I want him to search my heart as the Bible says and look into some of those spots in my life that I need to change and that I need to be intentional when I'm talking to the Lord in prayer and not running off my list of people that I'm praying for. See, that's so important, and this is what was going on when Jesus came into the city. He was saddened by it. And the Bible says to us, and it's interesting, in Luke chapter 13, I stumbled on this as I was doing the comparison over the different accounts. Look at what it says here, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophet and stones those who sent her. How often I want to gather you children under my un, together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you do not have it. The Bible says in 1941, when Jesus came into the temple or came into Jerusalem, that he was weeping. I didn't have. I thought that was the verse, but I, I was wrong. And when Jesus came into Jerusalem at 19, it says to us, he was weeping. And the word in the Greek is kaleo, which means a strong, sad wail of weeping during this parade of praise. And what we find here is Jesus is fulfilling what it said in Daniel. And Jesus was feeling sadness in his heart because he knew what was awaiting Jerusalem 
after the crucifixion of Christ and the wailing that would take place because Jerusalem would be overrun and the temple would be desecrated by Nero. And Jesus knew that the people who were there, not many of them believed in his name and trusted him. And at 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. And how tragic it was because they never recognized Christ. They were more worried about their nation. And it's so easy to, to, to get distracted. And here Jesus is weeping. Weeping over these people who are lost. And how sad it is. Jesus earlier on in this 13 passage. He looked at Jerusalem and he saw what she was. He saw they were a bunch of religious people doing a lot of acts that were empty. But did not truly trust God. And how Jesus has these tears during his entrance into Jerusalem. Those tears for those people who he knew were under the judgment of God and would never give their lives to God. And yet, here he shows the analogy to us of what he was doing there for those who did believe. Notice what it says, like a mother who puts her children under her wing and how she cares for them. I was reading a story about a Canadian farmer who his land got burned up and his barn was burned up and as he was walking through the barn and he was looking at the damage, he saw a mother hen laying there and he picked her up just to throw her because he was so disgusted and when he did, six little chicks fell out of that underneath that wing and they were still alive. And here we see Jesus talking about that hen who gave her life so those chicks could live. That's what Jesus Christ did for these people and they weren't even aware of it. He wanted to lay his life down for them and yet they would not believe it. He could have called 10,000 angels like that little hen could have done and ran out and saved her own life but instead she went back and put them under a wing and protected them and she got burned. She felt the heat and they never experienced it. Because of their mother's love. And that's what Jesus purposely does for us here today. And that's why when Jesus opens it up, he then he talks about the prophetic. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy here that was written in Zechariah chapter 9. And he's bringing peace to us. Peace with God. Peace to the world. And why this world did not get what he was doing. They knew under war, but they don't know peace. And Jesus says, finding them... A young donkey sat on it as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these were written of him and that he had done these things to them. Way back in Zechariah, 400 years earlier, it was told that this peaceful one, this conquering one, would come on a donkey, which is a symbol of peace, not a symbol of war. And that he would make the life straight. And entering Jerusalem, this is what Jesus does. He claims at this point now, he finally comes out and says, yes, I am the Messiah. No more telling them, hold yourself about that. Don't say anything, but now it's open and wide. Tell them. This is Zachariah's property, and I am the Davidic Messiah here. Jesus is declaring it. 
And that donkey ride symbolizes the peace that God wants to bring between man and men and each other. And the donkey is the righteousness of God, showing he comes gently. In Zechariah, in that prophecy of chapter 9, in verse 10, he says, I take away the chariots, take away the war horses, take away the bow that is broken. All those things of war need to be removed. And I came to bring peace. Here we are, enemies of God, so far and distant from him, but he comes to bring us eternal life and to share that life rather than be distant. And that he comes showing a donkey. Why a donkey? All throughout Scripture, God is showing through different symbols like a donkey what Jesus comes to do. Remember Abraham taking Isaac up to the mount to kill him and to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And what does Isaac ride on? A donkey. Think of the triumphal entry here again. And what happens? We see in the triumph of God is symbolizing the blessing of people. Jacob, his divine blessing comes where? They bring it on a donkey. He brings wine. And he brings this wine that is the choicest of the vineyard. And he brings these garments that are be washed in the wine. And that the Bible says there that their teeth will be white. You see, this is all referenced way back already in Jacob's divine blessing of Christ, what he's going to do. Again, in the Bible, emissaries brought gifts to their enemies and sent them on donkeys. Why? To appease them. What does Jesus Christ do for us? The Bible says to us, he's our propitiation. That means he appeases God's wrath by bringing us Christ, who appeases God's wrath that we deserve to go to hell and be punished forever, that he appeases that. That's the propitiation for our sins. He covers it over by appeasing with Jesus Christ coming. And again, the judgment of God, Balaam spoke. Balaam, the, 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 the donkey, speaks about the judgment that's going to happen to that prophet. And the demonstration again of a burden bearer. Jesus bore our burdens. Here he is coming on the, the donkey again, connected with common people, but the donkey is carrying the burden. We see that in the Samaritan where, where the good Samaritan comes along. And what does he do with the man laying by the road? Here we are laying by the road. And he puts him on his donkey and takes him into town and bandages up his wounds and then says, whatever he owes, take care of him and I'll pay it when I get back. You see, that's the message. And God gives us these glimpses all throughout the scripture of what Christ is doing for us. And that his blood conquers. And it's not just any blood. And he doesn't satisfy the devil. You know, there was a time in history where people believed that Jesus was sent to satisfy the devil because he was pleased that God had to do that because he was wrong. And the Bible says, no, God didn't send Jesus to appease the devil. God sent Jesus to appease himself for our sin. 
and he did it to make it right. God could never allow anything that's imperfect into the heavens. And so therefore, by his own blood, Jesus Christ cleansed and was the propitiation and the substitute that only could ever satisfy God's anger towards sin. It came through his own son, Jesus Christ. You see, all the people here are not getting this. They're seeing Jesus coming down. They're laying their clothes before him. They're laying their branches before him. But they're thinking Jesus has come here to conquer the Romans who occupied. They're saying, save us. But that's not why they came. He came to be the prophet, to tell us what God wants and how he's going to be satisfied and how he's going to take away our sin. He's the priest who comes and is our go-between between us and God, and he gives the blood and spills it to wash and keep away that barrier from us. And then he's the king. He's the Lord and ruler of the world. Listen to what it says in the Heidelberg Catechism, verse 20, chapter, uh, question 26. Christ executes the office of king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. That's what Christ does here on, as he walks in. He's setting himself up for it. And how we should be enthusiastic about what he's doing for us here. And then we see the crescendo. What we see happen here is incredible. That our Lord comes to liberate us of his own free will. Knowing how people will turn on him knowing that he is fulfilling the will of God and how this crowd could easily turn. That moves us to the passion. And that is, so the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people met and met him because they heard that he had done notice they're looking at the power that he can liberate them from Rome's. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after them. They're paranoid. And people are not seeing the magnificent love of God being poured out here. That says to us, come unto me, all ye that labor and every laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. No, they're, they're, the, the Pharisees want him gone. The people want to use him for their own man. They had expectations that he was going to change their world. How many times is it that we find ourselves with expectation, thinking that God is going to make our world right and just perfect? The Bible says to us God is in control, but he's not there to make our lives perfect. He's there to make us behaving as disciples and committed to him and purified in him, and obeying his will. That's what God's called us to do. And when we understand this, when we don't make an expectation of Jesus, our master, to fix our lives, but instead that we change our lives, and we have him the master of our lives, and we follow his will. We don't understand that. And we often want God to fix our world. And he wants us to fix us first. This is the, the excitement that we can have. 
This is the joy that we can. You know, there are times that we feel powerless. There are times we feel like we're enemies with God. That maybe he doesn't see us the way. I had a person the other day who said, all these things that are happening to me, I don't think God likes me anymore. The fact of the matter is he loves you. But he's going to put you through things to develop you and encourage you to become his firm disciple. That's what he does. And you see, Jesus is doing that as he's coming in to the city. They are filled with expectations of Jesus to fix their lives. And Jesus is saying, you need to follow me and be fixed by following me and the will of the Father. I am the Lord God. You know, it's easy to find yourself having such great expectations of God, increasingly telling him that he needs to do this or to help me with this. It's so easy to put that on him. We are in a world right now that is scary. I worry about my grandchildren. I worry, this little gal here, I worry about her. Because what the world that they have to face. The other day, I was reading about how in Seattle now, they're setting up groups and camps that you can send your children to at five and six years old, and you can teach them. They will be taught how to develop and define themselves and what gender they want to be and how to, to, to see what, what kind of things they like and that it's their world. Rather than seeing them as born and, and, and being of a child of God, they're being forced to look and change the way they live and the way God created them. They not only have camps now in the summer, but they also do seminars at the libraries in Seattle of transgenders. And they think that this is the way of freedom. It brings bondage. It's sad and it's tragic and our whole world is, is, is sick. And that's why we as Christians need to stand strong. This world is lost. And it's it's totally depraved, the Bible teaches. And that people need to have their hearts churned to Christ. I mean, I've seen depravity before in my life, and it's, it makes me sick. This past holiday, most of you know that I went on a, to, to go for my class reunion, my 51st. And I was away for my 51st. But the Friday before my 51st reunion, I was asked by a, a young man who I helped 35, 40 years ago, whose dad was in the mob. And he was a young man whose mother and father had separated because his mother didn't want this young man raised in that environment because she knew he would become a made man in the mob. And so she stayed over in New Jersey, him and his sister, and he moved into Brooklyn where he was working with the mob. And they were separated. And he'd come over on Wednesday and supposedly play with, to play with the kids, but he never did. He was too busy on the phone. 
And so she asked me if I would play with him. Some of the people in the church suggested me. And so I would do two times a week. We'd play baseball or basketball in the, in the parking lot. And I tried to get him to talk about the estrangement with his father and stuff that was going on inside of him. Well, one Saturday morning, I received a phone call from his mother. And his father had been, wiped, had been killed by the mob in a mob-style hit. And here... The word on the street was he was found on 72nd Street in, in New York with a bullets in the back of his head with the car running and the air conditioning on. And um, evidently, um, I thought that he was playing both sides of the coin with the mob, with two families. But now I found out that he wasn't. And what had happened with him first, that... He had come to know Jesus Christ as a savior, this mobster. And what had happened was the man who this young man was named after, Greg Scarpo, who was in the Colombo crime family, and his mom changed the, the, his name to be Greg with two Gs to differentiate him from this mobster, who was a hitman for the Colombo crime family. And what had happened was when they found out, the mob found out that he gave his life to Christ. They were afraid that he was going to turn on him, on them, and start ratting out to the FBI. So his best friend, who went to the baptism of his son, who was named after him, was the godfather of this child, that night took a ride with their, his dad and shot him to death and murdered him in the car. And here it's his best friend. But we didn't know that at the time. We thought he was playing both sides of the spectrum, but he wasn't. Rather, he was basically shot as a martyr because he believed in Jesus Christ and wanted to change his life and get out of the mob. And what happened was, after um, this, now 40 years later, uh, and, and when I went to the funeral, he was there, and he was playing with Greg, and he was hugging on him and hugging the wife and saying, I'm sorry, and all these mobsters were doing this at this funeral, when it was disingenuous. The two guys who had killed him were there, and also the mobster who his dad, this guy's dad was, Greg Scarpo Sr., was, was the one who ordered the hit on his father. And now Greg is a, a, a mature man at 44 years old. And a year and a half ago, he contacted uh, this guy in prison. And one of the things he asked him, he said, did you kill my dad? And he said, well, you know, business is business. That was it. You see, this is how depraved the heart can be. And that's why people need Jesus. And here, his best friend murdered him. I still am trying to wrap my mind about that. He tried to contact him again, but never could contact because he was released from prison because he had cancer himself and would not return young Greg's calls. And you see, this is the world we live in. And what we need is there are times that you and I have ups and downs. We go through all kinds of problems because it's a fallen world. And there's inconsistencies. There's things that, are, that don't make sense to us. How could you kill your best friend? How could you put that in your world? But that does happen. And as I grow older, 
There's a lot of things that may not mean or be consistent, but what we realize that God is at work and that he's at work in the lives of people in our lives and that as Jesus comes in to, to Jerusalem, he comes to take our lives and to redeem them and to make them right and to make them new so that we can be the children of God that he wants us to be. And that we can reverence him as the prophet who tells us what we need to do and we'll follow his will. That we know him as our priest that washes away our sins and keeps us pure in our lives. And that he's the king. That he's lord and rulers of our lives. And that he will. We don't want... When we find those inconsistencies and those trials, instead of bailing out, because I know there's some Christians, they get hit with a crisis in their life and they're already bailing out and they're mad at God and they don't understand God and they just don't want to follow him anymore. I've seen this happen in my life. But we see here, this Jesus cares for us. And no matter what happens in our life, we can trust him. No matter what he puts us through, no matter what we go, and that he tailor makes those situations so that we can glorify him and trust him. That's what he wants. We don't need to understand what God's doing. We don't need to understand like the crowd did or the disciples. They didn't understand. But what we do need to do is we need to trust him. And that's what Jesus calls us to do. And we will see God working in our lives and working the things out that will glorify him. Let's pray together. Father, I just pray right now, as we come to you and as you made that bold entry into Jerusalem, that you did that for us. And all the things in our lives, the struggles that we go through, the difficulties, you're there for us, that you love us. I pray if there's anybody here who does not know that love. I pray if there's anybody here who does not know that they can be sure that if they were to die tonight, they could be in heaven with you. That today they can know that because of your coming to Jerusalem for your specific purpose with us on your mind to die on the cross for us and give us eternal life that you will be by our side in the inconsistencies and the trials and tribulations and that we can truly worship you and give gratitude to you as you are the one who deserves it all. Thank you, Christ, for being with us today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's rise and receive the benediction and also our sing our closing song. And now go in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God your Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit now and forever. Amen.